0: Hello, this is Michelle Rado. Welcome to today's Daring to Tell. Today, there are two books that are tangential to our conversation. The first is Cheryl Strayed's Wild, a huge bestseller and a story that I recall for the bravery that she took of going on that long solo hike on the Pacific Crest Trail, but that she... Embarked on because of losing her mother. The other book, actually, a set of books that are called Peter and Polly, and one for each season. So there's Peter and Polly in spring, and autumn, and winter, and summer. These were books that were read to me in my childhood by a very dear neighbor, a woman who ended up playing a huge and very meaningful role in my life and that unexpectedly popped into our conversation today, my conversation with Peg Conway. So there's Wild, and then there's Peter and Polly. And then I thought, how funny that these two books are sort of related to the conversation we have because those were in fact the books that I packed into my hospital bag when I went in for gastrointestinal surgery back in January of 2015. Wilde happened to be the book I was reading at the time, but I also happened to bring Peter and Polly because these stories had nurtured me so much as a child. And the day that I woke up from my surgery, I reached for those comforting tales of my childhood. And a few days later, the nurse who had been caring for me saw I moved on to Wilde and she said to me, time for the big girl book now? I smiled at her, I loved that. I loved my surgery. And this is a funny thing, um, also because loving something difficult was something that Peg and I both kind of came to today in this conversation. Loving talking about grief, well, I loved talking, I loved my surgery, I loved talking about my surgery. Medical care has been something that has felt like love to me. And that's because I grew up without it. I was taught that prayer alone was the best way to care for ourselves. My mom was a devout Christian scientist, and it was what was best for her. And because it was what spoke to her the most, I tried very long and hard to think the way she wanted me to think, the way that she raised me, to do what she wanted me to do. The older I got, the less that really worked out for me. And so getting rid of the mindset of a religion that was not working for me, while trying to not also reject the love of my mother has been a very different story. um, And one that I am working on trying to tell. But one that did take a more intense turn for me after I had had that large malignant polyp removed from my rectum in 2015. That's a little bit of my story that I feel like makes sense to to share with you at this point. Anyways, today... A hint of that self-compassion that I think I was working towards with those two books in my bag in the hospital. Well, that's the kind of self-compassion I can clearly see Peg Conway has been cultivating within herself for a very long time. It's quite admirable, and so that's why I'm very excited to share it with you, Peg Conway, and her essay, Undone, that we recorded in the fall of 2020.
1: I noticed my classmates all seated together in the first few pews of the far left section. I felt glad to see them, but funny about it, too. The first taste of being motherless as setting me apart from other people, somehow different in a basic way. I never did see Nothing like
0: that I never did dream
1: Nothing like that I imagined all the trees could see and the sun could move. The
0: moon would slide into a place to wait for
1: eternity.
0: Today, I'm talking with Peg Conway, who Peg and I met in the famous Nadine Publicity Powerhouse workshop Nadine is a writing coach. I always just call her Nadine. Nadine Kenny Johnstone, who is a writing coach for you and for me. And so that is how we kind of got to know each other in this group and has been really fun talking with everybody. So tell me about what you're working on, including... Your book. Okay.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks, Michelle. Yes, Nadine has been quite the connector. Um, well, I live in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I have been writing for the past several years focused around the loss of my mom when I was a child, which is not something, I mean, it's been decades ago that this happened, literally 50 years ago. Um, but I, it's not something I really was very open about for a very long time, um, did not really even grieve for a very long time. In young adulthood, um, as you'll hear in the piece, I had a very significant event that kind of unlocked the emotions and then kind of dealing with them little by little over the years and the different ways they manifest at different points in life. Um, and I then have been working for a couple of years on putting together a memoir of this experience. And it's kind of a it's called The Art of Reassembly, a subtitle, A Memoir of Early Mother Loss and After Grief. And it's going to be published at the end of this year in November by She Writes Press. And I'm really excited. This is a little nerve-wracking, of course. Daring to tell is the perfect like description, um, but it is exciting and and really joyful as well. I, I often say now that, you know, for, after not speaking for so long about something that was so major, once I'm getting into a groove and I'm getting used to speaking about it, it's really a pleasure. It's really like a liberating to yeah. to share.
0: I think there is something about that, and we we certainly can talk about that more, that when you at last speak about these things that, as you say, you've been processing this for decades and decades, I think sometimes we can't talk about it for a really long time. And then when we do, it's like something comes out and it just blossoms,
1: I don't know, or processes. I think that's true. That is very true. And the the added dimension to a childhood loss is that as a child, depending I mean I was seven years old when my mom died. And so at different developmental ages, children experience the immediate aftermath of the death in a particular way. But no child is capable of processing it completely. So even in the in the most ideal of situations, if there's you know grief support or whatever it's still going to be something to grapple with at those later milestones when you graduate from high school and your mom isn't there, your dad isn't there. It recurs as something to be processed again from the older vantage point of recognizing, oh, now I don't have her here for this. And it, it just it's just an ongoing thing. And that's not a bad thing. That's just part of life and that I think our culture is getting a little more used to.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So when did you
0: decide you wanted to write a memoir or how did you decide
1: I decided in fact I had thought for a very long time that I would not write a memoir because I did not think that I had enough recollection and just didn't really feel Mm -hmm. like something I wanted to do Mm -hmm. and then I think it was partly after I saw the movie Wild by Cheryl Strayed which I had not read the book at that point and I thought oh this will be interesting it's about a hike Well, very clearly in the very early scenes of the movie, it's not about a hike. It's about mother loss. Like, oh, wow, this is really interesting. And then I had a couple experiences of things that I was writing. I, I wrote an earlier version of something that's in the S.I.M. reading today. And the feedback I got, I realized I was writing about it as a bad vacation. But as I really kind of delved into it, I thought, oh, I'm I'm writing about mother loss. And then I started thinking about all the different things I had written over the years and realized, I've been writing about this. And then I got really interested, like, ooh, maybe I do want to do this. And at that point in time, also, my dad and my stepmother were in decline and in their elder years. And that kind of spiraled me back into thinking about earlier parts of my life that then it seemed much more um, ripe, to be examined and put together into a memoir.
0: That's very interesting also because in taking other writing workshops that I've done over time, I took one with the author Bill Kenauer, William Kenauer. He has his own podcast Author to Author. And one thing that he was saying when it was in the context of, you know, what if you have a few different ideas you're not sure what to write about, he said it doesn't even matter, just pick one and start writing it because the story that you need to tell will come out. And so I find that interesting. That that is very, that
1: connects with my experience for sure. Yeah.
0: It's sort of like, well, that's something you had to say and it made itself known. And then you, you gave it, it and yourself the permission to indulge your curiosity in it, which is another, I think, thing that we need to be able to do as writers is say, what is this thing I'm writing about? And why am I writing about it?
1: It's such a dynamic between being curious about what, what it really is about without getting too heady about, Oh, this doesn't have the right structure. And Oh, these are repetitive and all, but that comes later. It does come later. How do you write? I'm
0: always curious to find out like the times or ways that you actually sit down and, start typing or do you use a pen I usually,
1: or? I often start with a pen. I do journaling many days a week, not every single day. I don't do anything every single day. I, I tend to ebb and flow with things. And then I get like a spark, like something will spark me. And I think, hmm, I want to write about that or I want to examine that a little further. And then it might take on a little more structure, and some things don't, or or maybe later. Sometimes I go back and reread old things I wrote, because I have a, I have my handwritten journal, and then I have finished pieces, and then I also have word files filled with various ramblings that are more than a journal, but not yet a piece, and so sometimes I will go back and re-examine those and think, oh, maybe I want to develop this further now, and other things just remain
0: half-baked. Right, well, I, Because one of the other things when you were saying about you didn't think that you could write a memoir because you didn't think you could remember things. And that's one thing I certainly have thought about myself when I've considered writing about things from my childhood, especially or even the recent past. I actually do a similar thing. I go back and look at journals that I keep because I try and just write down my thoughts and as they happen, and then I can go back and look at them as resources to say oh right that thing was going on at that time but I find triggering my memory to be really difficult and was there did you bump up against that like how did you flesh those things out sometimes
1: the things that were hard to remember or painful to remember I would have to I would usually just I would often write in present tense as though I were there and then I would just sort of stream of consciousness like yeah it's sunny he said this I said that mm-hmm. I felt this my stomach felt that or you know like just different things I right um and then other times I had I would I actually went to places that were part of my past like yeah a particular branch of a library and I I arranged a visit to my old grade school and and that wasn't like factual research exactly It kind of was like you know it's located here and it's this big or whatever um, things that might seem different from when you're a child but the emotions that it triggered or the energy that it kind of erupted like what yeah. what is that that would give me something further to reflect on and examine I'm a fairly intuitive person and so I tend to go with gut feeling of okay this is the direction or this is the the basics yeah. of it yeah not I'm, stress about minutia.
0: right I agree and I have to say I think that's something I'm I'm learning I think I always tended to not trust my gut and part of the, my biggest story is learning how to trust my gut so I love hearing that intuitive thinker and going with that and i think the more we can at the
1: same time i will also say that i have learned over the years to be a little more not less trusting but also bring in the brain the, yeah. the head Because yeah. too much gut and not enough head is just as much of a problem really as too much head and not enough gut or heart i mean all three of these right the balance of them is when we're optimal
0: I what think. we're going for exactly well i love the going back to places, because I've thought of that. Maybe if I went back to the grade school that I went to or the church that we went to when I was a kid, um, I sometimes do think about in trying to bring back some of those memories, like imagine walking through the building or something like that. And I think that that can help. And some of those memories, our imagination, not, not to suggest we're making things up at all, but also I think when you do sort of go with your imagination those memories or feelings are in there somehow and by sort of going with the flow it does open it up a little bit I guess
1: yeah it accesses something maybe it's a different part of your brain or just ai yeah. don't know it opens up associations like sensory things like I mean I don't know did I write this in a blog post recently or was it on a no, it was on an Instagram post about hearing uh music from the 70s oh, like yeah. things that were on the radio when I was a kid. Oh my gosh, that That's- that takes me back amazingly. Yes, absolutely. I all the
0: classic rock I go back and go, "Oh my god, I
1: remember where I was when we were listening to this or whatever." The clothes I wore, these yeah. are the friends I had. That's great. Yeah.
0: Well, why don't we have you read your piece? And then, as you introduce it, I'm curious how the piece that you're going to read today is that included in your memoir somehow? It's 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 like a subset of it. It's part of it, but not in there. Is that right? The
1: name of the piece is uh, it's called Undone, and it opens with a particular episode in my current you know middle aged life with one of my grown children, and it kind of spirals back through past experiences that all have kind of a similar emotional thread and kind of it reflects on the lasting impact of that loss and how it kind of lives on and yet is manageable too. Like living in the present is really what I'm after. All right. Well, Peg with Undone. The unraveling began after we finished dinner at a Thai place in Lincoln Park. Our young adult son, Michael, his girlfriend and another friend, all Chicago residents, had joined my husband and me for a drink at our hotel's rooftop bar before riding together to the restaurant. We'd spent a nostalgic afternoon together at a middle school boys basketball game for the team that Michael and his friend coach. The pounding of the basketballs on the gym floor, the loud whine of the horn, the piercing tweet of the referee's whistle and the shouts of players and parents, all of it had mirrored Michael's grade school playing days. Partway through the first half, his girlfriend, Catherine, joined us in the row of metal folding chairs by the sidelines, and we chatted easily for the rest of the game, eventually striking up conversation with the parents on our left. Who was your child on the team, they queried. Our response, the coach, evoked chuckles all around, but the interaction brought melancholy for me. Being at this game choked me up with happy memories of the past, but also sparked mourning for the present. Basketball was something Michael and I had shared during his growing up. Now it wasn't the same. He was out of college, working, living his own life. We were truly just spectators. After the evening's feast of sushi, stir fry, and bottles of wine, I expected more chatting outside the restaurant as we awaited separate transportation. A relaxed goodbye that would manage tectonic shifts beneath the surface where molten emotion simmered. Michael had informed us two weeks earlier that he and Catherine will be moving in together this summer when their current leases expire. Instead, I'd barely stepped to the sidewalk when a random cab appeared at the curb. Catherine turned to Michael and said, Should we just take this? In the next instant, they hugged us in thanks and piled in the back seat. Michael waved and said, see you tomorrow, as the cab pulled away. Suddenly, void of their youthful vibrance, the neighborhood turned sinister. Then a switch inside of me flipped and I launched a tirade. Well, dinner's over, so let's just take this cab, leaving us alone on the street corner. They probably thought our Uber was on the way, Joe said, his face angled toward his phone as he tapped out a ride request. Perhaps, a tiny corner of my brain suggested, they treated us as they would their friends, assuming competence to summon our own transport. Pacing the sidewalk, I was not yet ready to heed that rational voice. Finally, our driver did a U-turn to pull up in front of us and I ranted softly about his slow response, the traffic, then the loud crowd in the bar, as we crossed the hotel lobby, rode the elevator to the seventh floor and entered our room. I imagined sending Michael a snarky text, Safely back at hotel, not that you cared. Then, quickly deflated, I rejected the idea. I didn't want negativity to define the evening or ruin the next day, the final one before our return home to Cincinnati. Standing rooted in place, I covered my face with my hands as tears leaked from my eyes and my breath came in gulps. The feelings that combusted there on the street corner came from something. What was it? Back when I was our son's age at another street corner in a different Midwestern downtown, early on a June morning, I prepared to make a right turn in my car, having just dropped off my roommate and friend, Bitsy, at work, when suddenly I heard a terrible, terrible thump half a block behind me. No, please, no, I said aloud to myself, but I knew someone had hit her. Without thinking, I stopped the car, jumped out, and there she was, lying in the middle of the street, her purse and tote bag beside her. I watched her flailing attempts to get up, a dazed, almost vacant look on her face, but she was unable to muster all the necessary motions to stand. Bystanders were already gathering. A woman crouched next to Bitsy with a hand placed lightly on her shoulder. Stiff with fear, I forced my legs to walk over there. As sirens became audible in the distance, I realized I should notify her parents and ran into the bank to use the phone. Then I went to the fourth floor and recruited a co-worker to accompany her in the ambulance. The two of us returned to the street in time to see Bitsy being placed on a stretcher. The sight of her in a cervical neck collar made my knees feel weak. I really have no idea how seriously she's injured, I thought. I waited until the ambulance departed before returning to my car, which I left unlocked with the keys in the ignition and my purse on the front seat, and drove the few more blocks to my own office, where I had client projects to wrap up before flying out that afternoon on vacation with my brother. The anxiety of not knowing the extent of her injuries numbed my limbs and tightened my chest, and I could not concentrate on what I needed to accomplish. Neither could I overcome the fear of actually finding out what had happened. Seeing my distress, my colleague called the emergency room and obtained concrete facts. Broken leg, broken nose, bruises and contusions, teeth damage. Bitsy was banged up, but she would heal. My exhale of relief released a few tears and cleared my mind enough to complete my to-do list. We didn't have cell phones then, so several times during the trip, I called Bitsy's family from a phone booth to receive updates on her surgery, to insert a rod in her leg, and her general well-being. But once she and I were both back at the house we shared, I began to notice how lost and empty I felt inside, as if I were free-falling through space. Was it letdown after the stress-laden vacation, I wondered to myself? But this inner void persisted. The sensation seemed out of proportion to Bitsy's condition and in comparison to how others were handling it but also strangely familiar in a way I couldn't quite identify. I wept intermittently for no apparent reason, and my clothes grew loose as I dropped weight. It wasn't long before I connected these lost feelings to another traumatic early morning years before, when I was seven years old. It was late autumn during second grade. My dad entered the pink walled room I shared with my older sister who was nine, followed by my older and younger brothers. My inner alarms began to sound. Why were they all coming in here together? My dad's distinctive wavy black hair normally combed smoothly back from his forehead and temples looked tousled and seeing his blotchy face, his eyes red rimmed made my throat constrict. Well, kids, dad said quietly, we have an angel in the family his voice cracking as he finished. Mom, I whispered, launching into his arms, sobbing even before he nodded yes. Soon after, lacking the immediate capacity to process the enormity of our loss, I left his lap, ready to put on my plaid jumper and white blouse. But dad said we wouldn't be going to school that day. Down in the kitchen, I discovered my mom's parents cooking breakfast. My aunt arrived shortly after. Their presence at our house on a weekday morning when I should be at school heightened the sense of wrongness. My insides felt empty, like I was floating in space, untethered. I had known my mom was sick and in the hospital, but no one had ever said the word cancer aloud to me. I sat in my older brother's lap, sucking my thumb as the grown-ups conversed in subdued tones." A few days later, we stood silently at the church entrance, watching the smooth unfolding of the metal stand on which the casket was placed after its removal from the hearse. Walking in procession behind the rolling casket down the long church aisle as organ music boomed, I noticed my classmates all seated together in the first few pews of the far left section. I felt glad to see them, but funny about it, too. The first taste of being motherless as setting me apart from other people, somehow different in a basic way. Now, more than four decades later, as the mother of a grown up son, I stood in a Chicago hotel room confronting the specter of that long ago loss. It had surfaced like it always does when life presents a transition. The feelings are the same, whether it's a major event like moving to a new house the simple fact of being the last to leave a social gathering, or even the joy of watching a beloved child flourish independently. I want so much to be over it, but the truth is the childhood loss never ceases to reverberate. Of course, things evolved as Michael became an adult. In theory, I hoped that he would find someone to share his life, but this juncture has arrived sooner and in a different manner than expected. It was normal, but I was not. I'd known myself as broken by mother loss ever since the day of my mom's funeral, from the moment I saw my classmates in the church. Such harsh self-criticism only pushes me to the periphery, I'd also come to understand. It creates the very separation that I fear. Over my entire adult life, starting after Bitsy's accident first shattered my defenses, this emotional cycle has played out hundreds of times. Circumstances trigger an outburst, followed by self-recrimination that gradually shifts to trembling vulnerability as the acute phase ebbs. Only then can I reach out for help. Joe, will you hold me? He hugged me tight, saying little, and the physical contact broke the spell. Tears spilled, my breathing slowed, my body rested gently on the ground again. I returned to the present, knitted back into relationships, to a kinder self-understanding. It's okay. It's always part of you. Just let it be there. You're okay. Breathe. The storm's passing washed clean my perspective. I saw clearly that Michael calls home often and besides welcoming us in Chicago, he visits Cincinnati regularly. Though I miss him being nearby, I am not abandoned. Our relationship is not over, it's changing. My task is to nurture this new stage like a seedling. I will allow it time to emerge and trust the growth process. See you tomorrow, Michael had said earlier from the cab, words that now resounded with hope and possibility.
0: Man, you have been through it.
1: Emotionally, you have been through it. Yeah. Yeah. But over many, many years, though, I mean, it's it's the accident of my friend is like, like if I my life were being plotted, that's like a huge inciting event of many, many things, personal growth wise, but the the sort of getting used to it and and thinking that I'm that it's over like I once my kids got to be a certain age, like, you know, the adjustment to motherhood, I, I just felt like I had a lot of emotional release. And then when they got to, you know, late grade school, high school, I felt like, okay, we've kind of arrived at an equilibrium here. And then when they started leaving home, it started up again. And of course, I mean, that's just sort of natural. Well, your voice
0: is just so um, measured and wise and reassuring because I feel that repetition and coming back yet again and again and again and as you mentioned of going through with your kids, was there something about you reaching the age that your mom was when she died or you surpassing the age that, or your kids I should say, surpassing the age that you were when she died?
1: That actually happened all around the same time, because like my daughter, I have three children, Michael's the oldest, and then our daughter is two years younger than he is, and then another son two and a half years later, and I was the same age as my mom when I had my daughter. So when I was 37, she was seven, and things with my firstborn, you know, the first time you go through something, and then things with my daughter, my 30s were a very fraught time around that issue of... I think I had this expectation that I was going to die young. That was just sort of like in the back of my mind or even in the forefront of my mind. And so I worried about it a lot. And I did things so that they'd be, prepared. weirdly, this sounds weird to say, so they'd be prepared if I died. Mainly, I educated them about death. Like I, my husband and I took them to funerals and we took them to visitations. So they would just kind of have some knowledge that wouldn't, that part wouldn't be scary if if a tragic death occurred the accoutrements of death would be at least familiar. They would have some context for that that wow. experience. How did they react to that? They were very curious. They didn't know. They didn't have my layers of baggage. They were right. like, oh, well, this is another new experience. And yeah. and happily, they never experienced a tragic loss of a of a parent or a right. young grandparent. Their grandparents all died in their 80s or older. And yeah, you know, so they I think they had a healthy, primary, mostly healthy introduction to death. That's- in fact, they're much more death literate than most of their peers. And two of them are going into social work, end of life. Well, that's interesting. And I think that that's clearly not something
0: that most parents think about. Like, let me take you to our funeral so you kind of become familiar with this. I mean, my grandparents, I think, the well, the first death in my life was actually... Not this is a whole other thing, I didn't even expect. I thought I'd think about this, but the very first person that I lost who was of great meaning to me was not even a relative, but a next door neighbor who is an older lady who I would visit all the time I would go over visit her we'd play little games we'd play hide the thimble she would read me stories I would watch Shirley Temple movies with her on Sunday afternoon she'd make me chocolate milk I mean we were really that sounds cool. like nirvana it was amazing I now I go oh my god like what a gift it was to have her in my life um she died when I was 10 that's I should put that aside because uh, then I'm going to say I didn't lose a grandparent or someone in my life till I was older, and I was completely not funeral literate at all. Uh. And that idea terrified me. I was. It was not until I was well into my 20s, maybe that I even went like I was very fearful of it. And I didn't want to go to awake. I didn't want to see I remember when my grandmother died, I didn't want to go and I was the only one that didn't go. So I was very avoidant about that. So when I hear you talk about mother loss, though, or early childhood loss, I never until this moment thought about it in terms of losing I called her Nana. She was our next door neighbor, but I called her Nana Chase. And I was so young, I didn't quite completely understand she wasn't my Nana because I had a lot of grandmothers. So it's like, oh, this is the Nana that's not related to me. But she was Mm -hmm. the one that I spent so much time with. And I remember something happened to her. I don't know what. And an ambulance came and took her away. And I saw her go into the ambulance and she went to the hospital. And I think my mom took me to see her once and she didn't look good and she died and it was devastating for me really I mean I've spent a lot of time mourning that loss um
1: did you feel that you had the reason like did did your mom talk to you when if you wanted to talk about Nana Chase did she she indulge that desire or she would indulge it
0: she would say she's somewhere else now, and she's um, she's not really gone. Um, I had a religious upbringing that was this isn't about me, Peg. <laughs> oh God, I had a religious upbringing that was not common. My mom uh, is a Christian Scientist, and so I was raised that way without doctors or anything and I think oh that's right interpretation of matter or physical life as not being true you know my mom said her true spirit is somewhere else and you can always remember her she's always with you but but I did but that was kind of where it ended and it was it did feel very abrupt and I do remember then another older lady moved in next door and I sort of just like, I'd go over there, and I wanted to have that same experience with her. And I sh- I think she was sort of like, why is this girl coming Kid, this Yeah. Is- was <laughs> like, can you read me some stories? Can we watch Shirley Temple? And she was, like, not warm at all. She was... Uh, oh, my goodness. It was bizarre and jarring, and probably for her as much as me. But, yeah. So, mm, this
1: is... So, this really... <gasps> sparked something for me too. But that's something that really I think is very important that we don't reflect on those things enough and we don't talk about them enough. So I'm delighted that my story elicited a story from you. Right. Absolutely. I mean and and that was sort of
0: where I'm going is that there you clearly have spent so much time thinking about this and processing it. And I haven't thought about it in the same dynamic that you have, because I think I put her in a different category, even Mm -hmm. though she was incredibly influential to me. She was my next door neighbor.
1: The infrastructure of your life did not change. You know, you didn't have to have someone different take care of you or anything like that. It was, it was a little bit second tier or, you know, kind of outer ring of your life, but it clearly was, it mattered.
0: It mattered. And when I hear you talk about early childhood loss, I actually now think about that for me a little differently as we talk now about it because, yeah, it was a really significant early childhood loss. And I know that I've mourned her passing. And in the recent years, because I thought about her so much, I've gone back and found the books that she read me. And I actually did some research to find where her grave was.
1: Oh, cool.
0: And I went and visited it and it was tremendously healing. I mean, when I found her grave, I, I wept like a baby. I mean, I just was like, Nana, I, at last I found you. Like she had left me, you know?
1: Oh, that, I love that so much. I cannot tell you (laughs) how much I love that. That would be a beautiful, a beautiful story. I think that's. I'm so glad, I, I just, it's funny, it just
0: sort of surfaced for me now. And I've read this story from you like many times.
1: <laughs> takes a while, doesn't it? Well, we, it. we have to your, revisit. The power of hearing something too, Is an it's, yes. a, it's a different experience to me to read my own words like this. It's yep. interesting. It sure is.
0: And so my question that I ask everybody, or at least I think I ask everybody, What about this feels daring to you, or what what was daring about telling this story?
1: Well, obviously, my mom's death occurred a long time ago. Even this inciting event, I mean, I'm in my 50s now. I was in my 20s when this accident of my friend occurred. It is now in my 50s that I am writing and publishing about this topic. It's breaking a silence it took me a long time to um, reach a point where I could do that, and it, in part, I think part it's somewhat my personality maybe, and part is cultural. You know, why are you talking about something that happened so long ago? And unique to my family, you know, I was seven when my mom died. When I was 11, my dad remarried. And so I had a stepmother, they had another child. I mean, my family changed dramatically after that. Some ways good, some ways not so good. But the main thing is we kind of pivoted to my stepmother's family. I call it, you know, we turned the page to the new chapter, and this was the happy ending to our sad story. We haven't, and of course, i I read a lot of books in my mind just stories. That's the plot. We're, okay, we've gotten past this sad thing. We're on to the happy ending. And so it it served to really bury my maternal story more than it might otherwise have been. It took a lot of mustering to not just excavate my own memories of what happened and connect dots but then put it into words that would make sense to other people rather than just you know sort of random memories are not a story so that's where the bravery felt and and it's kind of vulnerable to put yourself out there as a woman who has meltdowns on the street corner while you're waiting for Uber
0: <laughs> I know and it, it is brave to say you know what, this happens to me, these transitions, and to be able to eventually nail it down to what, like, oh, it's transition times. And to really figure that out and think about it and own up to it does feel very brave to me to share.
1: And along with that is a, is a necessary component of self-compassion that I'm not broken. I'm just, I've had these these experiences that have impacted me in these ways, and this is the best way to handle it when it happens. And it's accept that it's going to happen and just sort of gentle through it rather than berate yourself when something strikes you emotionally. Exactly.
0: I mean, I, I feel like that's, I've done meditation and I've done other practices, yoga, all this, where you go you have to be kind to yourself. You just have to revisit. You have to approach this as if it was someone else that you're being kind to and starting mm-hmm. over. Why are we so harsh on ourselves um, when you wouldn't treat your spouse, best friend, whomever that way? Um,
1: it is a very striking aspect of our species that we respond to our own woundedness with shame and disapproval, like when it manifests, we're like, oh, I'm bad, rather than, because we really typically don't react to other people that way, unless we're very deep in our own wounds. Sometimes people do push back on other people being vulnerable because they can't handle it. But mm-hmm. it just is a very interesting, it's very common, it's, it's like written about, it's known, it's a struggle.
0: The other thing is like, once we share it, there's just so much growth from it. And it does take a lot of vulnerability to to show that. So, I think another brave thing is the idea of really being, dare I say, joyful about grief, but loving to share the thing that is difficult. um, Because I think that, again, talk about expectations and cultural ways that we're not supposed to really show our love when it comes to expressing difficult emotions if it's so meaningful one can derive a lot of satisfaction from the chance to have those connections
1: i've said that in different ways like on some instagram posts or people like do resonate with it i think that phrase about when you liberate yourself you liberate other people like i think coming across with a genuine sense of liberation about something that's difficult, it does invite other people to say, Oh, I can do that. I mean, how many times have I had that experience as well? I have another question because
0: we didn't talk about the Bitsy part of this too much. Oh, sure. Were you avoiding
1: going with her in the ambulance? What was, I, I couldn't, I had a plane to catch. I had to get to my office. And so I couldn't, Right. And I really couldn't because of my car, too. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Right. Because I feel
0: like sometimes we can jump into logistics and obviously there were some compelling ones. But I can also see avoidance of a difficult emotional situation because you didn't want to go to the hospital or something like that. You know,
1: Um, there was probably there was probably some avoidance. But as a practical matter, I absolutely could not. I mean, I really couldn't. But the not being able to call and find out, that's all avoidance. Like I, I was right. frozen and, and I didn't even know how, I mean, call an emergency. I mean, it, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't just like, you know, nowadays we just I text her sister or something. Right. Um, but with, that wasn't part of our life then. And so my friend without telling me just called and, and she knew the family and she spoke to, I don't know, one of Betsy's brothers or something. And by the way, my husband is her brother. Oh, that's of course in my memoir that didn't get into this piece but <laughs> Right. So she was your roommate
0: and And now she's sister. my sister-in-law. So you two must have gone through a lot together about We did. That. This yeah. was
1: this was a very pivotal even apart from the mother-loss piece, it was kind of the first real thing that happened to me as an adult not living with my parents like there was no parents really buffering me from this now obviously bitsy's family was very attentive to her but she's very independent and she moved back she stayed with her parents for a little while but she was very determined to move back to her regular house and go back to work and you know she's a very go-getter kind of person But it was traumatizing to both of us in that way. And even among our friends, that brush with mortality kind of thing. Um, And that's actually kind of how I met my husband. There are eight children in their family, and they're all very close in age. And that summer, she had clear limitations on the things that she could do. Joe and another brother would come over to our house and grill out with us and, you know, help with the dishes. It just kind of mellowed everything. You know, never talked directly about, oh, are you guys distressed or just kept things light. And this is a very sweet way of being together. That's a very nice little epilogue. Is there anything
0: that the two of you now sort of go down memory lane about regarding the accident or is it not, you know, like.
1: Bitsy and I or Joe and I.
0: Bitsy and you.
1: We don't talk about the accident very often. We haven't talked about the accident in a very long time. I mean, we're still friends, Our lives have kind of taken slightly different paths. I got married before she did, and my kids are older than her kids and stuff like that. But we we used to. I mean, for a while, it would come up. We would kind of remember the anniversary, but more has happened in life. It's been 30 years. so. And actually,
0: speaking of anniversaries, I sort of came to my cognition this time as you read this, that your mom died in late autumn is this around the time that your mom uh
1: tomorrow it's 50 years oh wow oh my god and i'm talking about daring to tell i'm doing a very i've done a very brave thing for me of course with covid there's really not a lot you can do but my family has never observed the anniversary but this year i sent an email to my siblings who all my siblings one of them lives out of town but and my a couple of aunts and uncles a couple of aunts actually at a cousin and said, you know, it's 50 years and this feels like a big milestone. And so I usually go to the cemetery on the day of, I'm inviting you to join us if you would like to do that. And everyone is all enthused about it wow. to my utter surprise. <laughs> wow. I don't, so I don't know what we're going to do there. I probably should, I feel like I want to say something since I convened everyone, but I have told them, I also said the message, you know, nothing, I'm not planning anything major like some major ritual or requirement but if anyone would like to say and if there's anything anyone would like to remember or say this is the first time wow. we've ever done anything like this
0: that is really that's really interesting and significant and um
1: part of yeah. the joy like yeah i'm ready i'm ready for whatever happy you no know, if, if no one says anything i'll say a few things i if anybody gets emotional i'm totally fine with that you know so it feels real if it's again in that, that vein of joyful liberation. Yeah.
0: By living through it so many times, you eventually become friends with it even though it's pain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And it's so much better to let it give it its due than to try to put it in a box because it will never stay. It it just won't ever stay. Exactly.
0: Well, that's fantastic, Peg. I can't think of a better ending, frankly, to this discussion. Because I know I want you to tell me how how it goes. I will report here. Yeah. So as a quick little follow up there, I do know that that graveside memorial took place with Peg's family. So, as this first season of Daring to Tell begins working its way to a close, I've got a plan for some add ons like an ebook that might contain the original essays that have been written for this podcast, and maybe also a few other essays that would be inspired by some of the stories that were read here, too. So, stay tuned for details on that. Peg's book, as she mentioned, is called The Art of Reassembly. I can't wait to read it. It will be out later this year. Peg also runs a book group that is for adults bereaved in childhood. And if you're interested in that or finding out more about her, you can learn more about the book group at her website which is her name, pegconway.com. You can also check out the list of books that they have read there already, pegconway.com. In addition to finding what sounds kind of funny to say, but joy in grieving as we were talking about it, or maybe the satisfaction, perhaps, of reliving our stories so many times again and again, that we eventually find Self compassion or somehow make friends with the pain from our past. What I found myself also really loving has been the voices of these people who have just been through the muck. People who have faced what was recently referred to um, by Danny Shapiro in a workshop as the terrifying work she said you should be terrified when talking about our writing. If, if you're not terrified, she said, you're not writing what really matters. Um, and I found that incredibly reassuring, if not a little daunting, of course. Um, but the terrifying work of, of writing our stories, um, and I will also add the terrifying act of then reading them out loud... But what I love are these measured, brave voices. And that very much defines the voice that we will hear on our next episode. The voice of someone who has lived with, through, and beyond domestic abuse. One of the
1: things that's really important to me about writing this book and getting my story out there is to demonstrate just how important small acts of kindness that seemingly would be kind of no big deal, but to someone like me, and there's a lot of people out there like me, these affirmations are lifelines. I hope
0: you will hit subscribe so that you will be able to hear that story. Daring to Tell episodes drop every Thursday. If you have a comment, question you want to share with me or one of our writers, please send me an email. I am Michelle at MichelleRado.com. Michelle with two L's. My last name is R E D O. Thank you so much for listening, and I will catch you next time.